0: The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents The Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, today I want to talk to you about this wonderful reading proposed to us for the fifth Sunday of Lent. It's one of the most beautifully crafted, carefully written stories in the New Testament. It's from the Gospel of John, and it's the familiar story of the woman caught in adultery. Let me read to you just a little bit now from the beginning of the story. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and made her stand in the middle. They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him so that they could have some charge to bring against him. They caught her in the very act of adultery think first of the attitude of these Pharisees. Where were they standing? What were they doing? Think of the voyeuristic quality of that admission. We caught her in the very act of adultery. And then the mob forms, full of that irrational enthusiasm that characterizes all mobs. And they bring her, they rush her before Jesus intending to kill her, and at the same time intending to trap him. Here's something, Christians, that we see an awful lot of in the Gospels. The presentation of the mob and the psychology of the mob. There's a French philosopher named René Girard, a very influential thinker on the scene right now, and he's dedicated an awful lot of his work to understanding the psychology or even spirituality of the mob. Here's a few of Girard's basic ideas. Human communities, from families to towns to cities to nation states, are characterized by tension, rivalry, blocked and conflicting desires. There are only so many things to go around. We all want the same thing. We tend to conflict. You want this. I want it. We fight. This characterizes all human community. Now, what's a way to deal with it? Girard finds this in story after story in the great literary tradition. He finds it in plays. He finds it in religious texts. One of the classic ways that we deal with this problem is we scapegoat. What happens in scapegoating is very simply this. The town, the mob, the community finds someone or some group, and they choose to express their violence, to project it outward onto the scapegoat. The violence that would normally destroy them is now channeled outward onto the scapegoat. Now, what does this do? it affects something very interesting, it affects a kind of peace in the community, a kind of unity. We all come together in our common hatred of someone else or some other group. A peace comes over the community, yes, but a phony, unstable peace. Let me give you some examples of this, and we see it everywhere, it's a very common phenomenon on the very local level, on the very highest level. Think of how many families, maybe your own included, how many families have a black sheep? Somebody, a cousin or an uncle, maybe it's a grandparent, maybe it's a child, who just never made it. Not a success, kind of an embarrassment to the family. Families, if Girard is like, if Girard is right, rather like black sheep. It allows the family to project all of their violence onto that person. He or she gets blamed for everything, and the family finds a kind of odd unity precisely in this act of blaming. Where else can you see it? Look at this phenomenon now that we're all talking about, all concerned about these kids shooting up their high schools. Almost invariably, they'll talk about being bullied, that their violence is, a, is an expression of being bullied. Well, where's this phenomenon come from? That's as old as schools themselves, that kids tend to find somebody, maybe a little bit odd or strange or different, and they bully him, they bully her, they pick on him. This is Girard's phenomenon again. The tensiveness of the children's community is solved, is resolved, when they project their violence outward onto the scapegoat. Where else can you see it? Think of something as familiar and seemingly peaceful as a group of people in a coffee clutch. It's people sitting around, drinking their coffee, enjoying each other's company. But Christians, let's be honest what usually happens in those little conversations almost invariably someone is being attacked gossip backstabbing sharing stories about people usually when those four or five come together around their cups of coffee there's some victim who's being singled out for attack or for abuse and isn't it true i would ask you to move into these feelings with me isn't it true that we feel an enormous solidarity precisely with the people that we are gossiping with. It does create in us a sense of community, though it's unstable and strange and finally violent. It does create a kind of ersatz community when we all come together to critique somebody else. Here's one that is true of my world my world of scholarship and academics. The saying goes, what's the only thing that two scholars can agree on? The answer, how poor the work of a third scholar is. And it's true, you'll never get two academics agreeing with each other. We, we make a, a living out of disagreeing. But we can come together very often in a common criticism of someone else's book, someone else's lecture. There's the scapegoat mechanism Now go to the very highest levels. Where do we see it? nation-states cultures peoples engage in just this act Maybe the most obvious case in the 20th century the Nazis and the Jews What brought together the Germans of the 30s and 40s what brought them together in a kind of ecstatic community Well, in many ways, it was the common hatred of the Jews that Hitler managed to stir up. When they found their common scapegoat, they also found a terrific sense of national unity and identity. Now, lest we blame just the Germans, are we also guilty of it? Well, sure. Survey the history of our country. Back in the 19th century, but also very clearly in the 20th century. Who have functioned as the scapegoats? Well, of course, my own people, the Irish, go back to the early days of the 20th century or late 19th century. No Irish need apply. Look at the cartoons that were done in newspapers. Irish are often depicted as apes or monkeys. Then move up through the 20th century, the blacks clearly emerge as a classically scapegoated people. We find our identity in our common hatred of them. And on and on it goes. Rene Girard put his finger on this phenomenon we tend to define ourselves as peoples and groups precisely in our scapegoating violence here's a final example which i think is very helpful from the gospels themselves the story of the gerasene demoniac remember there's this man who is tortured he lives outside the city but close enough to it and he's chained by the tombs and there he's gashes himself with stones all day. When Jesus asks his name, the man replies, Legion, for there are hundreds of us. Rene Girard's reading of that story is marvelous. He says, that man is a symbol of this scapegoating violence. Expelled from the city, yes, as all scapegoats are, but kept close enough Because the city needs him to find its own sense of unity. Now, why is he called Legion? Because he bears the names of all the people who had scapegoated him. He bears the names of everyone in that town. That's the way it works, scapegoating violence. So, this wonderful story from the 8th chapter of John, the woman caught in adultery, we see the exact same dynamic. Here's a woman. The mob has formed enthusiastically around her precisely because they can all come together in blaming her. Their psychology is defined in relation to her. Their enthusiasm, their unity is established in relation to her. And they bring her before Christ. And this is the decisive moment as we watch what Jesus does. Tell us now, what should we do? The law says we should stone her. What do you say, Rabbi? Notice his first move. He simply bends down and writes on the ground. Sometimes in the face of the violence of a mob, and friends, it doesn't have to be just this type of lynch mob, but it can be the coffee clatch. It can be the, the, the bullying gang in the school. Whenever we confront it, sometimes the very best thing we can do is be silent. Don't contribute to it. But notice, please, Jesus bends down in silence, and he writes on the ground. Now, there have been a whole slew of commentators who have wondered over the centuries, what did he write? Because it's the only time in the Gospels that Jesus is ever described as writing anything. So what's he doing? There's a marvelous reading from the church fathers that what he writes on the ground are the sins of those who are holding the stones. Isn't that terrific? Here they are about to stone her in their enthusiastic self-righteousness. So what does Jesus do? He writes down their sins in the ground to remind them that their aggression and their violence ought to be focused inside, at their own souls. Rather than outside aggressively at her, they ought to turn that look inside. Remove the plank in your own eye, then you can see more clearly the speck in your brother's eye. You see what he does? In this wonderful move, he breaks up this mob which has come together for the wrong purpose inspired by the wrong spirit and jesus now takes their energy and he turns it back on them and then of course as john says they all one by one went home it's a beautiful moment when jesus breaks up this mob the church is a communal i've often talked about that the church is a great communion But we don't want these false communions. We don't want these false communities. In fact, Jesus wants to break them up that the true one might be formed. So Christians, when you find yourself lured into this false community, whether you're on the playground or you're on the table at the coffee class, you're in your society, whatever it is, and you find yourself drawn into it, know that Jesus wants to break up that kind of violent community. So what should you do when you find yourself, figuratively speaking now, with the stone in your hand, and you're about to hurl it at somebody, that sharp word, that piece of gossip, that angry observation? Think just for a moment of Jesus writing on the ground. And what he is writing is your greatest sin. Allow that violence that you're about to send out to move inside and look honestly and seriously at your own sin. And then allow that stone to slip from your hand. Forgive others because you've been so forgiven. God bless you. I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor Here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you.